So, Chooks, does do people know the uh, personal stuff going on with you? So I probably shouldn't say that via live stream then right now. Or, or can I? Can I? Really? I can? All right. So I had the pleasure of doing premarital counseling with Chooks and his lovely fiance, Paula. She was in Nigeria and he was in Metairie. <laughs> And I was here in the building. And so we got to hang out together quite a bit through Zoom calls. So somehow Paula is watching. Paula, we miss you. But he went back home to Nigeria. And while he was there, they got married. And so this is a newlywed in our midst as well. Congratulations to you and Paula. Uh, Hate that you are moving to Houston. But they... They will be blessed wherever you end up landing over there, my friend. You are a blessing to us. All right. uh, Hey, looking forward to us being together. We've had some wonderful times of worship and prayer together when we've had those nights. This was a little bit of an impromptu calling, so we didn't put that on the calendar and give you much notice. Uh, Part of that was driven by the message today that, as I was praying through it yesterday, just really felt like, we, we should find some time together to, to pray and to worship together. And the other portion is that we've invited in a guest worship leader who's going to be with us next weekend. So he'll be here on Friday night. He'll be with us on Sunday as well. So we're going to take advantage of having him here as well and have him be with us on Friday night. If I were to ask you this question, I don't think I'd be shocking anybody. Uh, and I think you've probably thought this, even if you haven't used these words. What if we are living in a heightened moment of social revolution? What if that's what's taking place? And I'm going to give you some historical context for the idea that there are social revolutions that take place within countries and people groups that turn things upside down. Right? And I, I tend to think that's sort of what's going on around us. Here's an encyclopedia's insight into that definition of a social revolution. It says, social revolutions are sudden changes in the structure and nature of society. These revolutions are usually recognized as having transformed society, economy, culture, philosophy, and technology, along with but more than just their political systems. Theta Scopole, in her article, France, Russia, China, a structural analysis of social revolutions, states that social revolutions... Revolution is a combination of thoroughgoing structural transformation and massive class upheavals. She comes to this definition by combining Samuel Huntington's definition that it is rapid, fundamental, and violent domestic change in the dominant values and myths of society in its political institutions, social structure, leadership, and government activities and policies. And this is the other element of the combination, Vladimir Lenin's definition, which is that revolutions are the festivals of the oppressed who act as creators of a new social order. All right, so the news is just, it's continuing to be just a loud Thing that interacts with our lives. And, but, but there's some nuances taking place, right? In the last week and a half, what I'm going to call uh, shots were fired between corporate America and individual politics, right? So you had the outbreak of activities in Georgia where companies 
were showing up into the arena of political conversations, people's political value systems were being kind of called out by Delta Airlines and Major League Baseball and Coca-Cola. And, and that's a little bit different than what most of us have grown up in, right? You, you, if you're selling a product, you tend to kind of like want to sell that product to everybody and not pick sides. But things are changing, aren't they? Because we're in the middle of something that could be a social revolution, right? When you used to watch the news, if you guys are old enough, anybody remember like Walter Cronkite doing the news? Remember that guy? Uh, Walter Cronkite presented the news. The guys today preach the news, right? You know the difference between preaching? I'm standing up here today. I'm not presenting anything. I am here to convince you of something. I'm going to say certain things with heat. I'm going to be animated about some things. I'm going to have strong opinions about some things. That's preaching. Now you can tune in to CNN and Fox and whoever is managing the news sources. And you're going to get preached at, right? You're going to get the news is going to be preached to you. This past week, you're going to, you would have been in touch with these class elements of whether, whether you are in the woke group or not. You are going to be bumping into ideological feelings and strong emotions. You're going to have, we visited and watched stuff that made up the old social revolutions, property owners rights versus the individual, right there. That's, this is the old as revolutions have been. There are property owners and then there are people who are rising up with their voice against the property owners. And so we watched that unfold last year as one class wanted a voice and folks who own property boarded up their property to protect from the voices that were being said. We're watching governmental policies shift as wildly as we've ever watched governmental policies shift. There is discussions of socialism and the management of wealth at a level that we haven't heard in decades against the, the capitalist approach to how to manage and do a country and its economy. But is this, is this new? Is this something that hasn't happened before? This is, this is one of the things about, you know, if we're, if we're historically ignorant, we can think, hey, when did all this start to happen? Um, can I just say this has always been happening? There's always been a people group at odds with another people group. And it's almost always economically driven, beneficially driven. One group is going to put its interests ahead of another group's. One group is going to seek to achieve power and influence so that they can use that power and influence to gain more for their own lives. And quite often that gaining of more is at the expense of somebody else. And then somebody else is going to respond to that. So if you and I visit the stage of world history, right, which the Bible does, right, the Bible offers us observations from the other side of the coin, if you will, of these things taking place. You know, there's a time in the history of, of Israel that Egypt is the influential arm of power in the world. And if you grew up studying history at all, right, you got taught, you know, the King Tut and the, the, the reign of Egypt in the world. You know, what was happening in the Egyptian empire? Well, you had one people group who had figured some things out, had given them some power, who began to approach other people groups with an interest in having what they had. I want your land. I want some of your skills. I want some of what you got. 
And so they would get conquered. They would take some of those folks and they would submit them as laborers into their world. And this happens in the Bible. This happens in the exile period, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the the groups that are going to dominate the world stage and they're going to take over and they're going to do the same thing every time. They're going to find a people group. They're going to overthrow that people group and they're going to submit them to become laborers in improving the economy of the motherland. When you get to the New Testament, the Roman Empire is playing that exact same role. It is dominating the stage of the world and it's taking over one people group after another. Right? You guys have heard me talk about this before, but you know, in the Roman arena, the, the pattern of their conquering and then subjugating people to their way of life produced a population that was about 40% enslaved. At some level, 40% of the people who made up the Roman world were slaves because there was a people group who had an interest in some of the stuff that they valued. So they approached other people conquered them, used their power and influence. And all along the way, eventually some of those people groups will push back on those ideas. Now you and I are most familiar with social revolutions that take place, kind of the European social revolutions, right? The French revolution that takes place is, is your property owners, your bourgeoisie and the proletariats, right? If you remember your history, these are the non-landowners. These are the people who don't have a basis for them to have any power. So if they're going to make a living and do life, they've got to go to work for the people who own land. So land was a basis of power and it created classes of people. You had the rich and the poor, the haves and the have-nots, the landowners and the non-landowners. And this breaks out all throughout Europe. And so what you and I have right now by way of sociological economic systems that we're familiar with, capitalism, communism, socialism. Where'd all those isms come from? Well, they're just different sets of people trying to figure out how to do life together. In the midst of Europe blowing up, having all these class struggles that were creating these social revolutions, a guy comes along and says, hey, I got a great idea. What if we just did away with classes? What if everybody was the same class? Do you know who that guy was? It was Karl Marx. And he created socialism and communism came birthed out of an idea that if we could just eliminate classes, we could eliminate all this struggle. But how do you go from there's a small group of owners of everything and a large group of workers for them? Who's going to create the, the transfer of wealth? Is this stuff sounding familiar a little bit? Who's going to create the transfer of wealth? Well, somebody's going to govern that, right? So a government entity is going to step in, going to say, hey, we're going to take this from you and we're going to give it to these guys and we're going to make everything communal and everyone's going to share equally and therefore we'll all get along and we'll stop all this hostility and warfare together. How many of you guys know that that's not how communism ended up working out, right? Communism was the investment of power in an even smaller group. Isn't it interesting that so many communists are communist dictators, right? It ends up being a very small group of people who then are in charge of dispensing the wealth to everybody else. And you still have not eliminated the haves and the have nots. As a matter of fact, in, in the history of communism, it becomes worse. The people who didn't have much before, they got even less now. 
And the people who had stuff before, some of them lost what they had, but then there's a little group within them that have got a lot of power. So one of the challenges of watching this happen is social revolutions occur because those situations exist amongst human beings everywhere all the time. It's not new for us, right? Now put in your outline there, social revolutions are times of heightened, intense ideas and polarizing positions that divide people into tribes or classes or ideologies, and then they go to war. And that war can involve bullets and swords, or that war can involve a war of ideologies. It could be a war fought today in social media settings. But it is a war of one group against another. But, but here's what we, when we pick up our Bible, right? That, that's human history, right? That's just a quick sociology, political science class for you. When I pick the Bible up, there's another thing happening tucked inside history, right? You can study every group that I just described, the Egyptians, the Phoenicians, uh, Persians, Babylon. You can study all those guys through world history, but you can encounter them in the Bible as well because there's another group traveling through all these settings. They're the descendants of Abraham. They're the nation of Israel. They're the church of Jesus Christ. They're another group that is within this group. The people of God travel through these moments of social revolution. So, you know, when you stare at that from a big standpoint, there have been Christians or the nation of Israel that's been among these social revolutions where one group's trying to take over the world. And within that world, there's a little group of people. God's people are traveling through these moments. There were Christians who were doing life amidst the French Revolution. There were Christians doing life in the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. They were within that setting where this revolution was taking place. There were Christians doing life during the communist regime in China. They were within that setting doing the life that God had called them to in these moments. And there are Christians today. We are those Christians doing life in the midst of what may be the next social revolution in our day. If you study history, you should be asking the question, how long will America stay the way it has been? Not, what's happening to America? Uh, what's happening to America is what happens to every people group eventually. One group is going to rise up against another group, and they're going to say, it ain't all right for things to stay the way they are. And we're going to force some kind of a revolution to take place. Well, today I want us to look at, if you have your Bible and you have a, an app with you, I want you to turn with me. Don't just stare on the, at the screen this morning. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 22. And a couple of things I want to point out by having us spend some time with the prophet Ezekiel. This was not what I planned to do this, this week, but this was where the Lord seemed to be stirring some thoughts. There's some things to learn here in this moment with Ezekiel. Partially what gets my attention is the, the, the social revolution that we are facing ourselves. But one of the things that happens is on the outside of this Bible, right? The Bible's traveling through history and humanity is experiencing history. So when Egypt is dominating the world, God sends a prophetic voice into that moment. A man named Moses and his brother Aaron. 
They're going to be prophetic voices on God's behalf in this moment. When Babylon is extending itself and taking over the world, that's what's happening on the world stage. You and I read that differently, don't we? The Babylonian exile, we read it from the inside out. We say, oh, that was the day when God took his people and sent them into a 70-year exile. Okay, that's what it looks like from the inside out. If you back away and don't use the Bible and you stare at it, it just looks like Babylon was taken over another country and taking those people to be slaves back home so that they could benefit from them economically. That's what's happening right there. And God sends the voice of prophets into those settings. When Jesus Christ shows up on planet earth, bearing the voice of the kingdom of God, and John the Baptist comes as a, as a prophet to go before him, it is in this massive social revolution taking place under the Roman Empire. So in history, God brings a voice. And there's a voice here for the people of God to hear and heed in Ezekiel's voice. Ezekiel's a prophet who he lives his life in Jerusalem up until about the age 25. Nebuchadnezzar shows up about 597 BC and takes thousands of the people from Jerusalem and brings them to Babylon. He's selective. He takes talented people. He takes leaders. He takes people he can use. You people come back here. You can help. You're talented. You're good at this. You're a craftsman. He takes thousands of those people. Ezekiel is one of them. And he gets to be in Babylon for the rest of his life. And he's going to prophesy on God's behalf to the people of God who are also been taken there, but also back to the people who are in Jerusalem. So that's who we're about to visit, right? Ezekiel chapter 22. This is who Ezekiel is speaking in this moment. Now, let me just give us a tip that I I want to say only Americans need this tip. Uh, When you read the Bible and you read Old Testament prophets in particular, those prophets are having a conversation with a nation. That's who, that's who their audience is going to be. There's something about being an American that when we pick the Bible up and we read about a nation, we think we're that nation. And so everything that's going to be said to the nation, we think, I don't know how many Christians I've heard quote, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, turn from their wicked ways, I, I will heal their land. They just pick that up like that wasn't originally spoken to anybody. That's for us. What land are you talking about? Well, it was the land of the audience that first heard this. So today you and I are going to interact with a prophet that's going to speak to a nation named Ezekiel. If you cross the border and went into Mexico, there's maybe a pastor there who's preaching from Ezekiel this morning. When he comes and picks up Ezekiel's proclamation, is, he, is this now about Mexico? If you cross to the north and went to Canada... I mean, Chooks just told me he just flew back from Nigeria. Maybe sat in church last week in Nigeria with a pastor who preached from Ezekiel. Maybe not, but if he had, is the nation being described there? Is that Nigeria then? Do all the Nigerians this morning who are reading from Ezekiel go, yeah, yeah, that's us. That's who this is talking about. Why is it that Americans do that with the Bible? Is it because we think we're the center of the universe? Is that what's happened to us? All right, so... We don't read the Bible that way because we are not that nation. But we are a a nation like all the other nations in the world. And there's something written here for us to learn from and to apply to our own lives. But just be careful you don't overdo it and turn this into something that was like a letter written to America. All right, so here's God speaking to Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 1. 
says, the word of the Lord came to me saying, and you, son of man, will you judge? Will you judge the bloody city? Then declare to her all her abominations. You shall say, thus says the Lord God, a city that sheds blood in her midst so that her time may come. And that makes idols to defile herself. You have become guilty by the blood that you have shed and defiled by the idols that you have made. And you have brought your days near. The appointed time of your years has come. Therefore, I have made you a reproach to the nations and a mockery to all the countries. Those who are near and those who are far from you will mock you. Your name is defiled. You are full of tumult. So God brings this revelation that Jerusalem as a city has been living amongst its neighbors in such a way that they've so compromised their testimony. They're so out of line with the ways of God that God says, your time has come. It's time for me to bring judgment now. And so God brings them in exile and he lets Nebuchadnezzar destroy Jerusalem. He brings a judgment through the hands of a king upon the nation of Israel, particularly in Jerusalem, and burns it to the ground. And the whole world watches on as this mighty city, Jerusalem, that everybody paid attention to, is burned to the ground and destroyed. And God begins to describe what's become of the city. And the phrases that he uses here are pretty telling. He calls them the bloody city. You know, it's interesting in that time frame, you're, you're not too far removed from the Assyrian Empire's dominance of the world. And their capital was the city of Nineveh, right? You guys remember the city of Nineveh? Nineveh was so bad a place that when God awoke Jonah and said, Jonah, guess what? You get to be a prophet to Nineveh. Jonah runs for his life. He says, I'm not going there. I am not going because they were the bloody city of their day. They took lives, their self-interest, their their disregard for human life was prolific. And so he's like, I'm I'm not going to, to Nineveh. Well, how interesting God now turns around and says, hey, Ezekiel, uh, say this to this bloody city. Jerusalem has become the murder capital of the world. Well, what exactly is happening here, right? You, you hear these phrases. What do you do with these? Let's, let's put on some human flesh for a second. A city that sheds blood in her midst. That's an interesting phrase. What does that mean? Well, I mean, let's break it down. At some point, somebody else is going to lose their life. But God is not going to say, hey, there's a plague. He's not going to say, look at the bad luck. You know, hey, look at these people just dying all over the place. No, he, he says, you shed their blood. There's something about what some of you are doing that are causing others among you to lose their lives. And I think that probably could happen in a number of ways. I think some of it could be criminal. Some of it could be just people extorting and taking from others under threat of life and actually taking their lives. Uh, in those days, it could be that there are some folks who get access to a benefit and health in a way that others do not. Right? This, this is third world conditions, right? So you've got the shedding of blood because of sanitary conditions that nobody's doing anything about. So it could be a variety of ways in which one group cares about their issues, but they don't care about that group. And that group is now dying left and 
right. Why would people do that? Why would they, quote, shed blood like that? Well, he links these two things together. You're a city that sheds blood, and you are defiled by idols that you have made. Why does anybody take somebody else's life? Why does anybody neglect the good of somebody else at such a level that it takes their life from them? It's not that hard to figure out, is it? You just want something for yourself in that moment that causes you to stop wanting it for somebody else. That's what idols do. Idols are things that we really, really want. I want certain things for me and I've stopped noticing anything about your life. I've stopped caring for your life. I've stopped protecting your life. I've stopped valuing your life because I value mine so much and I want stuff for me. And God describes this city that way. And then he turns around and says, you are guilty by your actions and defiled by your idols. You know, know, just reading this, those aren't welcome words today. Matter of fact, they're, they're words that maybe a couple of generations ago would not have been treated so hostily, but today they're, they're greeted in a great hostile manner. Don't put that on me, right? Do not make me feel guilty about something that I've done. But God appoints a voice. God says, Ezekiel, go and represent what I have to say to this people. And while you're there, slap two labels on them, guilty and defiled. That's my description of the condition of their life. I just want to ask you a question. The God of the Old Testament didn't go away. He's still God. And he stares at these conditions and he says, guilty and defiled. I'm just curious, when he stares at these conditions today, does he use different words? I mean, has he kind of like chilled with age? Has he gotten with the times? I mean, come on, you know, he was really, really bent out of shape over a lot of stuff. Something happened, you know, maybe the new covenant, maybe that happened and now he's chill, you know. He looks at people who take others' lives, who neglect others to a point where their lives have become this miserable existence. And he looks at that and he says, no big deal. Oh, I used to be upset about that kind of stuff. It's it's okay. Y'all go back and play. Is it okay for us to entertain the idea that God still sees these things and says, you know, if that's the life that you're living, you are guilty and you are defiled by idols. You want things at such a level that you have become poisonous to each other. That's how God saw this city. Ezekiel 22, verse six. By the way, we're gonna read the whole chapter together. Behold, the princes of Israel in you, everyone according to his power have been bent on shedding blood. Father and mother are treated with contempt. In you, the sojourner suffers extortion in your midst. The fatherless and the widow are wronged in you. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbath. There are men in you who slander to shed blood, and people in you who eat on the mountains, they commit lewdness in your midst. All right, catch the Bible's portrayal here. There is a group here who are abusing the power that they have. The princes of Israel, everyone according to his own power. 
There are people in Jerusalem who've got power over other people. Now, don't, don't read past this too quickly because these are the ingredients of a social revolution. Every setting where you find people beginning to be hostile towards one another, it's because one group's interests come at the expense of another group's interests. One group wants something for themselves that they're willing to take from another. And one group is going to be on the receiving end of that. And God lists them by name. He says there's fathers and mothers on the receiving end of this. There's sojourners and aliens among you in your land. There are fatherless and widows among you who are paying a price because there are some people among you who use their power to their own advantage and they bring harm to others. Have you guys heard the, the phrase, absolute power corrupts absolutely? You heard that phrase? I, I find this helpful in this passage, right? In, in verse 6, it's not so much the power that's the problem. It's the bent that's the problem, right? Everyone, according to his power, having been bent on shedding blood. So there's power. There's power that God gives for good reasons. Governments have power. Parents have power. People are given power. It's the bent of the human heart. That's the problem. It's not the power. It's the heart that's bent into its own categories so that I am willing to take actions for my benefit at your expense. And God points that out right here. Ian Duguid in his Commentary on Ezekiel said, all of the leadership classes in Judah are charged and found guilty of wrongdoing. The princes, described as being like a roaring lion a little bit later on, have wreaked havoc through a series of social sins. The officials, described as wolves, have likewise misused their power for the purpose of unjust Gain. What's the problem going on here in Jerusalem where God brings Ezekiel to bear on it? There are people with power who are using that power for their own gain at the expense of others. And when you do that long enough, you're going to have the others are going to rise up against you. They're going to have a different view. They're going to have a different philosophy. They're going to have a different ideology. They're going to go to war with the abuse of that power. Right? Remember Vladimir Lenin who said revolutions are the festivals of the oppressed who act as creators of a new social order. It's kind of interesting to visit that, that topic today, right? Because there's so much politics going on. And there's so much, and this is one of the things that I'm very concerned for us as the people of God who are traveling through social settings. That's what we're doing. Just like everybody before us. And there's certain noise that's filling in these moments, right? So, so what side of the issue should we be on? Should we be on the people with power side? Or should we be on the people without power side, right? Because these are social activities taking place in our midst. And it's kind of funny because... You know, where we are as Americans, Americans wield a lot of power because we're a wealthy nation. So we've got a lot of power. And then within our nation, we've got power because there's different amounts of wealth among us as a people. But did you, I wonder who you pull for in these moments. 
How many of you guys have ever watched the movie Spartacus? You know who Spartacus is? Y'all watch Spartacus? Eight of y'all, really? Nobody else has watched Spartacus? All right, so how many of you guys pull for Spartacus when you watch Spartacus? In fact, it'd be interesting. Anybody here not pull for Spartacus, <laughs> right? Except for Vic. Um, there's a story taking place. Spartacus is, is, is a real event in history that takes place in the first century BC during a social revolution. It is the Roman Empire who is conquering the world. And whenever they conquered you, the people group that they conquered became enslaved within the nation. Now, if the nation made peace with Rome, by the way, you could escape this slavery thing. You'd still be part of the Roman Empire and there'd be this massive taxation on you, but you could escape the enslavement. But if you fought and resisted, you would then be enslaved. And so you have all these slaves and eventually you have an uprising of slaves. And Spartacus leads the third uprising of slaves that, that does some damage to the Roman Empire. You can almost say it almost toppled the thing in, in the first century BC. So when you watch that, you know, there, there's none of us who are like pulling for the Romans to come cut off Spartacus's head. You know, when the battles are taking place, we're not for them. We're for Spartacus, right? We want him to win, right? When you, when you watch that, that Chinese man there with the bags in front of him standing in front of that tank, Anybody pulling for the tank? Right? Do you remember Tiananmen Square? Do you remember when this happened? And there was this, the few with no power stood up against the power in that moment and said, you will not do this to us anymore. And everybody pulls for the guy with the bag standing there. Nobody's like, run him over. Oh, run that guy over. Get him out of the way. We're for the power people. Listen, this is the story of humanity. It is not new. It is not new to us. It is every people group being at war because one group doesn't have what another group does have. And there's a war because there's a misuse of these things because of the bent of the human heart. Right? I'm, some of you guys have read the book Le, Le, Le Miserable, seen the play, watched the movie, etc. Right? There, there are people you pull for in that. But when, when Victor Hugo writes Le Miserable, he, he does so to deliver critiques of, listen, wealth distribution, the justice system, industrialism, and republicanism. Right? So, and then this takes place in the 19th century France. Do those vocabulary words sound familiar today? Redistribution of wealth, does that sound familiar? Justice issues, does that sound familiar? These are not new words. They are, they are breaking out among us. What side of these words does the body of Christ get on? How do you navigate how to feel about the positions on these things? Right? All in the news. I mean, this stuff captures me because it's in the news. How do you feel about what's going on at the U.S. border with Mexico? What side are you on in that? See, these become issues when the body of Christ then tries to partner with each other for the sake of the kingdom of God. And you find out there's somebody in the room here who's on the other side. <laughs> They're not on the same side I am. They don't think the border issue gets settled the same way that I do. And these issues are everywhere among the body of Christ today. Can, can we catch something here? We are a people group within these people groups traveling through these moments. And just like God showed up in Jerusalem with a voice that said, hey, this is how you think about your moment. 
and he sent the prophets to them. God needs to send, and he is sending, right? His word is pretty clear in some of these categories. Send prophetic words to us to clarify what do we do with these moments? The border thing's a really interesting dimension, right? Remember, again, Ezekiel's not speaking to the United States of America. We're not the nation that he's speaking to. But he's saying something about our God that should catch our attention. He gave a little list of people who were on the receiving end of being mistreated, right? And in that list, there were fathers and mothers. There were sojourners. You know who the sojourners were? They were aliens. They were non-Israelites. They were people who weren't from the nation, who were among them. And God brings them up in particular and says, you are mistreating them. Where'd God get this thought from? Well, it's not new. This is, this is the heart of God who has created man in his own image. Don't let nationalities drive how God feels toward people made in his own image, right? Deuteronomy 14, listen, when, when, whenever the prophets show up and they've got a word, they're reinforcing things God has already said to the nation. So this is what God said in Deuteronomy 14. God told them, at the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. All right. So there's, there's this tithe element because part of the tithing element in the, in the Old Testament was to support the nation of Israel. So in the nation's function, there's this third tithe, right? This is every third year, a special tithe. The Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance within you, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns, they shall come and eat and be filled that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. God specifically said, I want you to take care of the Levites, the sojourners among you, the fatherless, and the widows. And then when you pick up what Ezekiel says, it's the same exact list. It's God saying, are you paying attention to these people among you? Now, now, this is not attempting to be a, a foreign policy statement for the United States of America. This is just a revelation of something God said to his people. When there was going to be an issue among it, that there'd be aliens in your midst. There'd be sojourners in your midst. And God would have a particular thing to say about them. I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you have read Deuteronomy 14 when you think about what's happening at the United States border with Mexico? Or has our talking point been supplied to us by some other group, somebody amongst the America who tells us what to do with foreigners in our midst? And that's the side of the discussion that we're on. Listen, I don't think either administration has done a very good job of managing the border of the United States of America or the people who are involved at that border. So this is not about me agreeing or disagreeing with a political view. This is just about me talking to the people of God who are living in a social revolution where shots are being fired over everything and saying, hey, before you take your cues, you might want to read Deuteronomy. You might want to hear what God said through Ezekiel to his people to pay attention to in these categories, right? Ezekiel 22, verse 10. If or in you, 
Jerusalem, in you men uncover their father's nakedness. In, in you they violate women who are unclean in their menstrual impurity. One commits an abomination with his neighbor's wife. Another lewdly defiles his daughter-in-law. Another in you violates his sister, his father's daughter. In you, they take bribes to shed blood. You take interest in profit and make gain of your neighbors by extortion. This is, this is what shedding of blood looks like. It's when somebody looks at another human being and says, you don't exist for the glory of God. The image of God is no longer what I'm concerned about. You're just, you're just a sexual object to me. You're just somebody for me to exact pleasure from. That's who you are. And God looks on that and there's an abomination to him that people would treat one another this way. And it creates the recipes for those who are in power and those who are not. So when you stare at the hashtag Me Too movement, can, can you see the hashtag Me Too movement in Jerusalem? Can you see that right here? There were women being abused by the power that men held in that culture. And they couldn't do anything about it. What's interesting in all of this is God shows up and says, that's it, I've had enough. God steps in to this moment and does something about it. But then there's something revealed in this passage. All this abuse of other people. And God says right at the end of that verse, but me... You have forgotten, declares the Lord. Can I just say this? I think it's impossible for human beings to abuse, misuse, mistreat, shed the blood of other human beings without that always being true. Me, you have forgotten. When God gets so distant from the human heart, that who he is, is no longer interacting with who we are. We're on our own. And what we do to each other is abominable. It's full of sin. It's full of me taking advantage of you because of the bent of my collapsed in selfish human heart. And God's pointing that out here. Ezekiel 22 verse 13. Behold, God says, I Strike my hand at the dishonest gain that you have made and at the blood that has been in your midst. Can your courage endure? Can your hands be strong in the days that I shall deal with you? I, the Lord, have spoken. I will do it. I will scatter you among the nations and disperse you through the countries. And I will consume your uncleanness out of you. And you shall be profaned by your own doing in the sight of the nations. And you shall know that I am the Lord. Let me just chase this rabbit just for a second. I think I've got time to do that. Um, in the body of Christ today, there are, there are people who get the biblical conservative views of God who calls upon people to live within righteous boundaries with their behavior with moral activity. And, and they, those would tend to be evangelical conservatives. They kind of get that aspect. But when you read Ezekiel 22, is God a Republican or a Democrat in this chapter? Now, obviously that's ridiculous, right? Because he is neither. 
But if this was a talking point coming from somebody else besides God, what would you label him as? He's showing up for the down and out guy. He's taken up for the person who doesn't have power. He wants to help the person who can't afford to help themselves. Who's that, who's that sound like? Do you understand why there's a portion of the body of Christ in America who's at odds with another portion of the body of Christ in America? Because when they read the Bible, they see a God who runs to the aid of the down and out and the abused and the taken advantage of. And then they hear government policies that sound like that. They go, see that? That's like God. And in some way, they're right. That is like God. And yet God also is a God with convictions and righteousness and moral boundaries in the shedding of blood. In other ways, he calls out as well. But can you... Let this inform a little bit of where we are in terms of how we sort through the politics of things. Can, can we not become loyal to, to one extreme or another and jettison listening for the voice of God in the midst of these places? If we've created policies that work because they uphold certain principles, but they're at the expense of people in certain ways. We should not be comfortable with that because the Bible's not comfortable with it. Ezekiel goes on, verse 17, he says, And the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, the house of Israel has become dross to me. All of them are bronze and tin and iron and lead in the furnace. They are dross of silver. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Because you have all become dross before, therefore, behold, I will gather you into the midst of Jerusalem, As one gathers silver and bronze and iron and lead and tin into a furnace to blow the fire on it in order to melt it. I don't know what this does for those of you who have views about God being an environmentalist or not or, you know, green. God is about to refine his people. He's about to chop a chunk of ore out of the side of a mountain and he's going to stick it in a refinery. Pretty sure smoke. There's going to be stuff going on here. When this happens, but here's the imagery that God uses. God looks at his own people and he says, you were to be like silver. You were to be this pure, untainted metal, valuable to show forth my glory. You have become like dross. Dross is a word in metallurgy that involves tainted pollution. You're not silver anymore. You got some silver in there, but you're tin and you're lead. You're bronze. You've got other stuff mixed in with you. And it's an interesting picture, right? Because if you went into the mountain and you, you you wouldn't go in there and just, you know, cut out silver, you'd cut out a chunk of rock. And then you'd begin to take that rock and process it in refining And when you did that, you would be looking for a process that could remove from the silver all this other junk. So basically, the silver has taken on the junk around them. And that's exactly what happened in Jerusalem. God had set a people who were to be pure. They were to be a light to the nations. But you have become like the nations. You're now the bloody city. You people behave like the lost people all around you. You take lives for the same reasons. You have idols in your own heart. You want the same stuff that everybody else wants. And therefore, that's why you behave the way you behave. The idols of your heart 
caused you to take the blood of others. But God said, I had something different in mind. That you would not be bronze or tin or lead. Modern-wise lingo, you would not be progressive or alt-right or Democrat or Republican. You would be salt and light in the earth. You would recognize the unique role you play when social revolutions break out and take place around the people of God. That we sit like silver, pure, devoted to the purpose and the glory of God. We do not become mixed and polluted to where our allegiances and loyalties are attached to other things and people and movements and ideologies. And in this hour, listen, every week we are tempted with the news items to figure out whose side are we on. That's not the right question. We are always on God's side. Always. We are here to proclaim the glory of God. We are silver set in the midst of a mountain that's full of other things. And we're not here to take up those issues even though we may speak into them, even though we may live them, even though we may have an influence in our culture in the very same categories that these things are happening. But it's not because we're Republicans or Democrats. It's because we're silver. It's because we're God's people in the midst of this world. It's an interesting insight here. This article was in an encyclopedia on social revolution. It noticed within the social revolution taking place in Europe, there was a particular group in the midst of that revolution that was truly revolutionary. I'll, I'll, I'll spoil the, the surprise before I read this. It was people called the Methodists in England. Listen to this. Academics have identified certain factors that have mitigated the rise of revolutions. Many historians have held that the rise and spread of Methodism in Great Britain prevented the development of a revolution there. In addition to preaching the Christian gospel, John Wesley and his Methodist followers visited those imprisoned, as well as the poor and aged, building hospitals and dispensaries which provided free health care for the masses. Right. You and I are free health care. That's a talking point, isn't it? That's a political talking point. But you know what the Methodists were doing? They were providing health care for people. People had a need. Let's step in. Let's see what we can do. The sociologist William Swatos stated that Methodist enthusiasm. I love that. that this, that's just real Christianity, by the way. Methodist enthusiasm's transformed men, summoning them to assert rational control over their own lives while providing in its system of mutual discipline the psychological security necessary for autonomous conscience and liberal ideas to become internalized. An integrated part of the new man, regenerated, by Wesleyan preaching. Now we know this. They were not regenerated by Wesleyan preaching, were they? They were regenerated by the Holy Spirit. God had taken the gospel inside of men and had made them new men. And this message now lived in them from the inside out by the power of the Spirit. The practice of temperance among Methodists, as well as their rejection of gambling, allowed them to eliminate secondary poverty and accumulate capital. 
individuals who attended Methodist chapels and Sunday schools took into industrial and political life the qualities and talents they had developed within Methodism and used them on behalf of the working classes in non-revolutionary ways. What is this a story of? Well, in the midst of the decay and the decadence that was taking place in Europe and in, in England at this time, this is, this, is, you know, this is the birthplace of times of the Industrial Revolution when the industry of man was an opportunity to make a dime. And I can make a dime on your back even if I stick you in a coal mine and you get coal mine lung and you live a short life and your family has to figure out how to live the rest of their lives because you're dead at 40-something years old. But I made my money when I could. This is the industrial revolution taking place right now. People are being mistreated for a variety of economic reasons. But within that, you've got this little group of people called the Methodists, who when you came in among them, there was not these classes of the haves and the have-nots. There was not the property owners and the laborers. There was just people in Christ, and they were all treated with dignity and respect in a way that reflected the image of the glory of God in this setting. That's what's taking place in England through this little group called the Methodists. All right, one last passage here. Ezekiel 22, verse 23. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, say to her, you are land that is not cleansed or rained upon in the day of indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets, now listen to these folks, the prophets in her midst, it's like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured human lives. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have disregarded my Sabbaths. So that I am profaned among them. Her princes in her midst are like wolves tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have smeared whitewashed for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, thus says the Lord when the Lord has not spoken. And then the last group is just the people, the people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and needy and have extorted from the sojourner without justice. So great alliteration here, right? There's prophets, priests, princes, and people. And they have all become bent on using whatever power and influence for their own gain at the expense of others. Isn't that what's happening in our world today? This is the war. This is the war that's in the news every night. There is some people who seem to be in some way in society functioning differently than another group of people. There's an uprising between them. There are rights and there are ways of doing things that one group is seeking to protect. They don't want that taken away from them. They don't want to lose their power. There's another group who's feeling strangled in this world and is seeking to alleviate what they feel like is oppression on their lives. Can I help everybody to see this is not new. This is what the broken, bent, fallen human heart does on its own. 
It didn't develop in America. It is not an American problem. It is not the outworking of colonialism in America. It is not because of the slave issue in America. Although those are all issues, just like everything Ezekiel spoke of, is an issue in Jerusalem. But the question is, why are these issues in existence? Because of the bent of the human heart. That's the problem that generates this historically and today as well. So when God looks and he stares out, whatever revolution is taking place with the people groups that are there and fighting, then he looks within that group and he looks for a people. What's he looking for? Well, he's looking for this consistently in verse 30 of Ezekiel. God says, and I sought for something. I sought for something. I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it. But I found none. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation upon them. I've consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord God. I sought for something in that moment. Ian Duguid says, he first of all sought for a man among them who would build up the wall, stand before me in the gap on behalf of them. In other words, he sought a true prophet. Someone who would take on the difficult and dangerous task of interceding for the people, just as Moses did successfully after the incident of the golden calf. But this time, no one was found to deflect God's wrath. And thus, the all-consuming, fiery anger of God will descend on Jerusalem. Like I said, I, I had not planned. This is not part of my upcoming messages that I've been praying about for a while. But a couple of things just caught my attention and drew me to this. Obviously, our times need to be informed by God's prophetic insights and how we interact with them. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago, I was telling you about when Jesus showed up in Jerusalem and he came walking into Jerusalem, riding it on a donkey. Remember Palm Sunday? And we talked about that. Do you remember the first place Jesus visited? The house of prayer. Do you understand? Jesus rides into Jerusalem and there is a social revolution going on. The Roman empire and its dominance over a nation and other nations enslaving all kinds of people, mistreating them, creating a haves and a have not scenario that's everywhere. And Jesus walks in and the first place he goes, he is seeking the same thing God was seeking, is to the house of prayer. And when he walks into the house of prayer, do you remember what he does? He starts knocking tables over. Do you know what he found in the house of prayer? Economics. Commerce. He found Roman ideas. This is what Romans did. They conquered you and they provided themselves with wealth. When you came to the temple, no matter, no matter who you were and you showed up there, you were going to be extorted from when you showed up, especially those of you who came from poor outlier towns 
who you couldn't bring an animal with you. So when you got to the temple, you were going to have to buy an animal. But when you showed up, you were going to learn that the temple doesn't take that money. It has its own money. And the exchange rate is, and you are going to get ripped off when you came to worship God. And Jesus walks in and it's a business place. And what you saw there was the same engine that drives the Romans, drives the people of God. You've become just like them. Your interest is economic. It's what's in this for you. How can you gain at someone else's expense? And Jesus started knocking tables over. But he was looking for something too. Because he didn't just knock over tables. He said, my house shall be a house of prayer. So can I just call us to something that, you know, America, for all the, all the, the Christians in America who are complaining about our country, where, where, where are the, the prayer meetings where people have to stand in line to get in? Where are the, where are the people of God desperately crying out? Because we recognize in the midst of a social revolution, what we're called to do is not take up somebody's side. We're called to be the voice before the throne of God. We're called to go before God. We need to see these issues. Yes, we do. Ezekiel was taught these issues. This is how God saw the mistreatment and the abuse of power. He saw it. So it's not wrong for you and I to be informed about this is what's going on in our world right now. What do I do with that? I have access to God's throne. He's still looking for someone who would stand before his throne and call for mercy and call for a move of God in this place to see him displace these things. Now, I'm going to save this passage for next week. But thank God that Ezekiel chapter 22 is going to give way to Ezekiel chapter 36. Right? God has just talked about the defilement of heart that is generating all this noise. In chapter 36, he's going to say this. I, right, the same I who's bringing the judgment, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And <coughs> I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. Can this help us? Because we're going to take a moment. We're going to pray together right now. Right? I'm going to just turn this into a prayer meeting. You, you, you'll be able to say. Hey on Sunday. I went to a prayer meeting on Sunday. Because you actually sat in this room. And you took up God's issues. And you prayed. Do you understand when you read Ezekiel chapter 36, and we'll explore it more next week, there's no democratic platform and no Republican platform that says anything about that. Whatever issues are going to solve the issues at the border, the issues with taxation, the issues with the haves and the have-nots, whatever issues are being offered, nobody is talking about a new heart and cleansing from idols being at the center of it. Nobody but God. You and I know better. There's not a governmental policy that can do what needs to be done in the human life. 
that moment awaits a God who can show up and change people from the inside out. So when you and I go to pray, what are we praying for? That the Democrats win? That the Republicans win? That this policy wins or that policy wins? Is that what we're praying for? Are we praying Ezekiel chapter 36? That this God will show up in our day, in our day, and will change the hearts of people in such a way that from the inside out, they don't do what they're doing to each other because God has changed them from the inside out. So can we do this right now? Can we just take a moment and pray together? I'm just going to ask you to just, just bow your heart before God right now. Make this, make this your moment where you want to plead your case before God. What would you say to God about what you see going on? Things that you're concerned about, things that you're bothered by. Things that people are doing to each other. we are in a place like Ezekiel, where we're not Ezekiel, and this is not Jerusalem. But Lord, we are in a place like Ezekiel, where we are looking at a broken world, hostile, shedding blood, defiled by idols, Lord, what were you saying to Ezekiel when you questioned him? Would you, would you judge? Ezekiel, will you judge the bloody city? Will we judge the bloody nation? I'm not sure we see things accurately enough to judge anything. Lord, you gave a whole chapter's worth of insight to Ezekiel. God, as we pray, would you give us insights into the world that we live in, into its brokenness, into the way that the bent of the human heart has used power in ways that there's bloodshed, there's people whose lives are neglected, Lord, there's people whose lives are suffering. Lord, and you take notice, you see the world in its condition and you see the need, Lord, and you reveal to us the great hope that we have, Lord, that you, you, you would take action inside the hearts of men. Lord, that's the gospel that we have to offer humanity. Lord, not, not another set of principles, not just a 
philosophy or political view. What we offer to the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ who comes to renovate the human heart, to set us free from the things that idolatrously cripple us as people and turn our lives in on ourselves. So Father, as we look out into this world, Lord, and as we live in these times where news item after news item makes us aware of just how broken things are around us, Lord, would you let us not not be pulled into which side am I on? God, would you let us be pulled into how do I pray for that, Lord? How do I pray for that? Because that's who you've called us to be. Those who bring a gospel revelation into a social revolution. God, I pray for us even this week. God, I pray for us as we gather here on Friday evening. Well, if we have been a people who have drifted from praying for you, Lord, perhaps it's because we don't think you're capable. We don't think you'll do anything. God, would you help us gather and see your worth, see your power, see what you're capable of, Lord. Help us to gather and sing praises from hearts that have been renovated and taken over by the majesty and greatness of our God. Lord, you will have the final word. So when we come and pray to you, Lord, it is the thing to do, to seek you on behalf of the world that you've set us in. Lord, truly, we are a city set on a hill. We are a light to the nations. Lord, would you awaken in us yet again to be that light. Lord, thank you for the testimony of the Methodists who lived lives in public that were effective and transformative and touched the world that they lived in. God, make us those kinds of people for your glory, for the sake of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, God bless you guys. Bless you guys at home. We miss you. Hope to see you soon. Come join us. Hope you can join us on Friday night for our time of worship. Guys, don't forget there's a picnic that you're welcome to come hang out and enjoy some snowballs and some activities. Just pick up some food. It's shelters seven and eight. If you get out to laugh in your park, shelters seven and eight is where you'll find the crew from Lakeview.